Hey everyone, Matt here. Welcome to War Machine, the podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar. Justin Pearl and I recently had a chance to speak with Jeff Kripal, who teaches philosophy and religious thought at Rice University and is the Associate Director of the Center for Theory and Research at the Esalen Institute in Big Sur, California. I'd love to get there one day. He's previously taught at Harvard Divinity School and Westminster College and is the author of eight books, including his most recent project called The Flip, Epiphanies of Mind and the Future of Knowledge. We were also joined by our friend Emery Jones, who stepped in to guest co-host, and it was great to have them with us. Uh, We had a great conversation where we touched on panpsychism, the paranormal, ontology, consciousness, psychedelics, and some other things. I think there's going to be a follow-up conversation in a month or so where we'll talk about ufology and aliens and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, we'll see what else we get to. Just a reminder about our upcoming seminars. In June, Adam Clark will lead us in a discussion on James Cone. Uh, We'll be posting the readings for that on Patreon soon. In July, Clayton Crockett will join and talk with us about radical theology and new materialism. In August, Thea Cooper will be with us to talk about the indecent theology of Marcella Althus Reed. Go to patreon.com slash radical theology to sign up and join the conversation. Oh, uh, we've added this thing on our episode pages where you can leave us a voice message if you want. So chances are, if you leave us one, we'll play it on an upcoming episode and respond to it. So I'll link to that in the show notes, uh, or if you've clicked through on a link on social media or something like that, you should see it there as well. Right, that's all I've got. Here is Jeffrey Kripal. Peace. There he is. Hey. (laughs) Hey, guys. How you doing? Thanks for coming out and joining us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Where are you all from? I'm in, I'm in uh, beautiful New Jersey. <laughs> is New Jersey beautiful? It is. You should come out here and check it out. It's the Garden State. <laughs> it's, the gar- it's the Garden State. We have, if nothing else, we have tomatoes somewhere. <laughs> I, I've been, I've been to New Jersey, Matt. I've been there many times. We used to, I used to live in Pennsylvania. That's where okay. I am right now. I'm in uh, Pittsburgh. Where are you out of now? I'm in Houston. Okay. Yep. And you're at Rice, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Oh, so you're close to uh, Emery. You're in Texas, aren't you? I am. I'm not close to him at all. I am. <laughs> we're currently recording in Eula, Texas, uh, but I'm I'm from Merkel, Texas, which is outside of Abilene. Okay. So you're way you're way west. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll work on my Texas geography. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a long. It's a long, long ways away, actually. All right. I was hoping Petra might be able to jump in. We, we didn't hear from her. She's um, from Sweden. She kind of joins when she can. But uh, Emery is jumping in, which is great. And he's going to guest host today. So hey, then. you've read uh, some of Jeff's stuff, right? I have. I'm a, this is embarrassing. I'm a big fan. <laughs> oh, uh-oh. <laughs> you don't have to be a big fan, but that's fine. Well, actually, this was uh, Matt's birthday present to me, so. It's <laughs> <laughs> great.
My name is Jeff Kreipel. I'm a professor of religion at Rice University in Houston, Texas, where I presently work in mostly administration. I work as an associate dean in the School of Humanities. I've been in the field for almost 30 years now. Um, all my early work was on male sexuality and ecstatic religious experience. And then about 15 years ago or so, I got interested in, I think what most people think of as the paranormal, um, essentially extreme religious experiences that don't quite fit into any framework or culture or tradition, and that sometimes get picked up by religious traditions and sometimes don't. Uh, and so that's sort of what I work on now. So things like near-death experiences, precognitive dreams, uh, abduction experiences, UFO sightings, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, fair to say that you're someone who's made a career by being associated with pursuing, uh, let's just say, weird stuff, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we'll, we're going to get into some of that, of course. But we had this guest on recently who uh, I think was kind of riffing on the idea that, you know, philosophy... But theology, whatever, is is biographical, right? Just to say that typically there's what he talked about as a primal scene that's generative of one's thought and development and so on. And I, I like that idea of a primal scene and, and curious about why you find yourself interested in these kinds of questions, religion, esoterica, the paranormal, and so on. Would you say you have a primal scene of some kind? Or, you know, <laughs> Well, uh, the phrase is very Freudian, and it refers to your parents having sex. Of course, that's that's what the the real primal scene was. Is that I don't, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> that's what the phrase means, actually. <laughs> no, I know. I'm just no, I no, that didn't happen. I mean, apparently, apparently that happened. I mean, I'm here, right? I mean, um, apparently that happened with all of us. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really come out of theological interests to, to answer your question and not to play to the audience. But I mean, I, I do come out of a Roman Catholic background and I, I wanted to be a monk, actually. It's what I really wanted to be when I was a, a young kid. And um, when I got into the study of religion, which was, you know, years later, it was really a kind of backing into it. I often joke, nobody grows up wanting to be a professor of religion. That That's just not going to happen. Or it's a really weird kid, one of the two. Um, most of us, uh, Emery, so Emery's the weird kid here. Um, most, of us, most of us back into it. We have a question that our religious tradition either can't ask or won't ask. And so we find a way to ask that through some other institution which happens to exist in our, our cultural surrounding. Mm -hmm. in, that, in, that, in my case, it was the academy. It wasn't something I was looking for. It was just a place that allowed me to have these questions. And, um, I, you know, I think I also have a theological questions. I'm interested in what the nature of reality is and what the soul is and what God is. And those, by the way, are not traditional academic questions. So I don't quite fit in where I'm at the moment either. But I definitely come from those kinds of questions. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the academy in there. I was curious, and I think this is kind of setting up what will follow probably. What would you say the impact of scientific materialism, sort of reductive style, is on the humanities with, within the academy? Oh, um, and, you know, maybe there's something to be said there too about the impact for society, culture, politics, whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think that's the reigning uh, metaphysical model 
of the certainly the American Academy is this kind of scientific materialism, this notion that there's only matter and that matter is fundamentally dead and meaningless and random and everything that we experience and consider to be meaningful is, is essentially an illusion. Um, I think that's that's just the world certainly I live in. Um, was that the question you wanted to answer? Or? Well, yeah, I'm sort of just curious about how that, I guess specifically within something like the study of religion, which as the story goes, as I understand it, right, sort of distances itself from theology to take mm-hmm. a more enlightened view, let's say, yeah. a more atheistic view maybe of yeah. religious experience. Like methodologically, are there any problems that you have with that? What what happens when one begins talking and thinking about religion from a place of sort of this unreflective materialism? How does that? Play, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, it's comp- it's complicated um, to answer the question. That first of all, the, you know, the study of religion. There is no the study of religion. It's a very diverse kind of group of people. There's about ten thousand people, say, in this country alone who study religion professionally, and they come from abroad spectrum of approaches. But I would say the consensus in the kind of secular or state university academy is a kind of secular materialism. And I would say there are very positive things about that. And there are some negative things about that. The the positive things is that it allows us to look at things that the religious traditions generally don't want us to look at or won't let us look at. Uh, So all my early work on male sexuality was in that zone. I mean, it wasn't that my tradition was against the, it, it wasn't for those questions. Let me put it that way. Um, it wasn't that it was censorious or, or oppressive anyway. It was just, you couldn't ask those questions and still stay within the orthodox bounds of, of the tradition. Whereas in the secular academy, you could ask those questions because you weren't bound to orthodoxy. You weren't bound to any particular religious tradition. So in that sense, that kind of secular materialism is very freeing and very positive and I think very necessary. It eventually becomes a bit oppressive because of course it doesn't have any vertical dimension. It has a, it has a horizontal dimension that's very effective and very powerful. And of course that horizontal social or political dimension is where we live most of the time, but it, it cannot handle this sort of vertical or transcendent dimension of, of religion. And, and that's where it, I think, becomes a real problem. So I don't, I don't see a clear, I mean, I don't see a clear answer there, Matt. I don't, I don't think it's one or the other. I think it's, the question is, how do you, how do you do both or how do you honor both? I think there's also a question that I would want to ask of, but at what point does our, you know, when we think of the traditional ways of interrogating religion within the context of religious studies. There's a question in my mind all the time is at one point in our study of religion, do we lose the religion, religion itself? Yeah. Um, Because, you know, I I was reading a text recently on automata in the ancient Greek temples and different things like that. And this, this scholar was taking this approach of, you know, it's religious fakery and these sorts of things like that. But I was thinking, well, yeah, you can do this kind of materialist reading, like they're trying to fill the coffers type of thing going on there, but you aren't reading religion at that point, right? You're really reading politics and you aren't getting to, you know, the experience of the believer who like walks in and sees the automata and thinks, wow, isn't this amazing that the gods can make use of 
matter in order to produce this noetic experience. And so I, I kind of wonder if you are opening up this kind of discussion, whether intentionally or unintentionally, of are we losing religion in the study of religion? I hope I'm doing so intentionally and consciously. I mean, I, I think we do lose religion in religious studies. I think to the extent we ignore or cannot really engage the transcendent or this experience-based uh, model of religion, we do lose religion. And religion just becomes a social system or a discourse or, or a politics or an ethics or whatever it becomes. It, it, again, it becomes this sort of horizontal social thing, which it in fact is, <laughs> right? Um, but we lose the, the vertical dimension. And it's, it's that point, I think, that religion ceases to be religion and becomes politics or, or society or, 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 or identity or something else. I wonder if there's something of an like an anthropological approach that maybe can retain something of that religious a little bit more. So I noticed, for example, that you you reference uh, Eduardo de Castro in some of your work, uh, who is somebody who I think has a really interesting approach to religious traditions, which is basically to take them at face value, right, to not impose this this kind of particular secularizing lens on them. And so I wonder if when you're treating the paranormal and ufology and those sorts of things, are you attempting to do something similar, uh, treat it as, as more of an anthropologist than a scholar of religion? Would, would that be a fair framing? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's fair. Um, I, you know, I was trained in a field called history religions, which was a mixture of anthropology and history, really, uh, and theology. And philosophy, it was kind of a mix of mishmash or a mix of everything. So the problem I have is this, it's a, I hope it's an honest problem. It's, you know, I often say I don't believe in beliefs, but I believe in belief. And what I mean by that is, I see it as my job to take everyone's extreme religious experience seriously. So this woman might have a near-death experience and this man might have a near-death experience and so on down the road. And they all, the landscapes of the afterlife are all different in each of these near-death experiences, but they each also share certain things. And sometimes an individual experiencer will get really upset with me because this person wants me to sign my name to every detail, a visionary landscape that they were in. And I was like, I can't really do that because if I sign my name to your landscape, that means I can't sign my name to anybody else's landscape. So I'm, I'm sort of bound by my discipline and certainly by my own conscience to take everyone's extreme religious experience religiously. And that means not exclusively. And that lands me in a difficult situation, right? I want to admit and honor that difficult situation. It's just, it's just hard. I mean, where is that? You know, and so someone like Eduardo Viveros Castro, I mean, he seems to honor these Amazonian traditions he's studying, but he has to go walk down the hallway and talk to another anthropologist who's studying Marian apparitions in Portugal or divination ritual systems in West Africa. And all of these, all of these cultures work completely differently. So what exactly are you saying? And I think what he's saying is that reality actually works differently in different cultural zones. Okay, but that just pushes the problem back one to me. I, I still don't know what reality is there. I don't know what 
I don't even know what religion is. I mean, what is it? It's, it, it, it's a question I have. I don't, I don't have an answer there, but that's actually how I feel about a lot of the UFO stuff or a lot of the near death stuff is it really, it's a, it's an ontological shock to invoke John Mack here. I mean, you re, you really are put in a, a confusing metaphysical situation. And you, you said that you came out of the history of religion. So I'm thinking of, you know, the traditions of people like Mercy Aliati, for example, which the solution that they seem to come up with to this problem is to look for like commonalities between traditions and try to, you know, in this union way, try to dig through the differences to get to what's the same. But at least for me, there seems to be something sort of fundamentally, uh, I don't know, unsatisfying about that kind of approach. It seems like it, it smooths away what's interesting in these different cultures. So, yeah, sorry, I, I just think that this is like, I've brought this up in previous conversations. It's like a methodological monotheism, <laughs> right? You're, you're still kind of chasing the specter of the one, which is fine. It's a fine place to be thinking and working out of, but it is at odds, as you're saying, Jeff, I think it's at odds with a, a sort of more multiple pluralistic metaphysic, I guess. Yeah. You know, one of, one of my heroes is a man named Richard Schwader, and he, he's an anthropologist, by the way, and he talks about ontological polytheism. And what he means by that is that reality actually works differently in, in different cultures and different historical epochs. I don't know. I don't know, Matt, if I'm a polytheist. I'm, I, I think I probably am convinced of the one. Um, so we're the polytheists. Yeah, no shade, no shade. <laughs> yeah, but that does, I mean, I don't know if that means I'm a monotheist. I'm, I'm certainly a, a monist in some sense, but that doesn't mean I, I don't think human beings experience that one in very different, if even incompatible ways. Uh, so I, I think we all have to, well, we don't all have to, we don't all have to do anything, but certainly if you're trying to do compare religions, you, you do have to balance sameness and difference. It seems to me that's inevitable and somebody like Eliotti, who, by the way, founded the program I was trained in, he really wasn't, in my mind, flattening difference. He was basically saying that all of the religions are resources for us and that we actually don't know where we're going. But there's a, there's a new human being on the horizon of the future, and we have to be honest with ourselves about the past and the present, and we have to work towards that future, but we actually don't know what that future is. That's how I read Eliade, and I've read a lot of Eliade, by the way. Um, and I think he gets critiqued a lot, quite unfairly, and I'm not suggesting you're doing that, but I, I do think we have to be careful about misreading people, um, particularly him, by the way, who I think is misread all the time. He's not Carl Jung. Jung did, I think, kind of put everything into a, a, you know, his collective unconscious, as it were. But I don't think Eliade did that. I think he was much more comfortable with difference in, in a kind of polytheism, frankly. He was very polytheistic. So before you jumped on, we were talking about how we thought maybe this conversation would go. And we're like, all right, let's not jump into the, to the deep end right away. Let's. <laughs> I feel like we've, we've gotten away from that strategy somehow. So I, I'm wondering if you could maybe use, use your experiences with your study of the paranormal as a way to sort of back into, let's just get right to it, the relationship of mind and matter. Yeah. So first of all, I don't. 
I don't study the paranormal as a neutral object. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I studied the paranormal because I was trying to figure out the California counterculture and I was working with people who were telling me crazy stories. And I knew these stories actually really happened. And I became really intrigued by that. And I was intrigued why the study of religion was so inept at handling these kinds of stories, why I'd always read them as essentially something else. And I decided that wasn't adequate. So a lot of a lot of my work with this material is actually working with people who have had these experiences. And what I've learned is that these experiences are almost always traumatic and they almost never fit in. And sometimes they get picked up, certainly by religious traditions, and they become belief systems. But that the the paranormal experiences themselves are are not technically religious in that institutional or historical sense. They're certainly profound, and, and, and people will often remember them for the rest of their lives, but they don't need to become objects of belief, let me put it that way. And so that's what fascinated me so much about paranormal experiences as a historian of religions was how they how they worked to shape religious traditions, but also how they don't quite fit into those religious traditions. And so they push individuals and they push communities, I think, to form new worldviews constantly. And that's one of the first things you learn when you study the history of religions is that it's never the same. It's it's always changing. Like our worldview right now is not going to be the worldview of our grandchildren and their children. It's just not. It's, it's going to be a different worldview. So I'm interested in how those things change, but also how things are are the same. And I guess that's why the paranormal really fascinates me because you can find the same kinds of experiences thousands of years ago that you can find in your neighbor's backyard. And to me, that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you've talked about contemporary occurrences of people coming back from the dead and so on, correct? Right. Well, they do. They, they come back all the time. They, they won't stay dead. Can, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean... Part of this, too, is I really resist this notion that for something to be profound, it has to be in an ancient culture or a text that nobody can read. Um, I think people, particularly people who are dying or people who have loved ones who are dying, often have really extraordinary experiences around the death of that loved one or around the death of themselves. And they'll often talk about this, and sometimes they won't. But I think these happen every day all around the world. I think people have encounters with loved ones that that they've lost and that this is really the the origin of the belief in a soul and an immortality and all kinds of things. I mean, I think human beings have been having these experiences for as far as we can see back. And, you know, historically, these have been read as dreams and, and as misperceptions. That's how the secular anthropology has dealt with them is by essentially saying, well, these were foolish people because they had a dream of someone who died and they thought that person was still alive. And that's how you get the belief in a soul. And my response to that is no, that's not what happened. Uh, That's not what happens today. People have actual experiences of dead loved ones who tell them things, often very accurate things. And this is why they believe in a soul. And again, that belief may not be correct. I'm not judging the belief one way or the other. I'm just saying those beliefs are based on actual experiences. They're not based on misperceptions or on ordinary dreams. So you are sort of famous for rejecting a 
like a purely psychological explanation for those sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. Like as you just did. So, you know, to, to put it in the simplest terms, so what is happening there, at least on your account? Well, how would you how would you make sense of an experience like that? So, I mean, what you're asking, I mean, you're asking you're asking me what you should ask me after you give me a lot of beer. Um, I'm sorry. We'll, yeah, we'll do better next time. Yeah, my feel, <laughs> my feel. First of all, I'm I'm very suspicious of what I would call personal immortality. That Jeff, for example, will live forever, and that that would somehow be a good thing if I did. Um, I do think consciousness probably doesn't die, but I think it's a kind of shared consciousness. And I think when people experience dead loved ones, you know, it's usually shortly after they died. Um, there's a kind of temporary immortality that kicks in, essentially. And sometimes those encounters, it's not clear to me whether it's the actual dead loved one or it's some other aspect of the person having that experience. I mean, it's not clear, you know, whether it's a it's a it's a dead spirit, as it were, it's a surviving spirit, as they say, or if it's some aspect of the living agent. I think that's an open question. Uh, And I don't think we actually have an answer to that. And so, like, metaphysically speaking, would would you affirm, like, this This begins to sound like something like a, like a panpsychism to me yeah. that, that seems to maybe be underlying that response? Would that would that be fair? So I don't I'm not a fan of panpsychism um, because to me, it's just materialism in another form. You still you still have what they call the multiplication problem. You know, you have all these little bits of of consciousness and you have to put them together and they have to add up to something bigger like you and me. I'm, I'm much more of an idealist. I think there's something up here and then it gets reduced and it comes down to, you know, uh, us four on this screen. So I'd probably go the other way. I would probably flip it. As I say, um, panpsychism to me is a kind of halfway house. It's better than materialism, but it's not, it's not quite there and it, it doesn't quite work for me because it sounds, it sounds too much like reductive materialism. Yeah. That's interesting. I, you sort of hinted at something that you, you write about in some of your work called the uh, filter thesis. Yeah. I want you to talk about what that, what that is, but I wanted to try to connect this. Um, something I don't really completely understand, but have you heard of the, Akashic records. Yeah, sure. Sure. Right. So the way I understand it is uh, in my limited understanding, it's like this sort of cosmic archive where all the knowledge of the universe is stored. It's like, you know, maybe you can think about it as the mind of God. Right. Um, But upon this view that the brain is a function of mind, it makes something like that seem somewhat more plausible. In theory, it would seem like it would be possible to access something like that, right? And I know there's right now there's probably people listening to this who are just like sh- shutting it off, but I don't care. What, what do you think? Don't about? don't shut it off. Read Dr. Michael Persinger. Get into the parapsychology. I don't know what that means, but we'll uh, we'll review that comment later. <laughs> yeah. So I I don't think often about the Akashic record. I mean, Akasha is Sanskrit for space. And the Akashic record is a theosophical notion that comes out of 19th century occultism. And it is pretty much what you just described. That's not what the filter thesis requires, Matt. Uh, it's much. It's no, much, but but makes plausible. Yeah. Yeah. It's I suppose it's it's more plausible. I don't want to deny something like a cosmic storehouse of memory is really what you're talking about. 
but I don't have much need for it or much interest in it either. Um, I think memory is largely personal and biographical and probably not that necessary in terms of the cosmos. I hope not anyway. I hope my memories are not important <laughs> to the cosmos. Um, the, you know, but the filter thesis, just, it's really simple, actually. There's, there's a production model and there's a reduction model. The production model of mind simply says that the brain produces consciousness. And so when the brain stops, consciousness stops. It's that simple. It's like turning out a light. You turn out, you turn off the switch and the light goes out and that's it. So there's on the occasion of death, when the brain dies, consciousness ceases to function. And so there's no consciousness. <laughs> the reduction thesis or the filter thesis says the opposite, that the body and the brain are essentially very highly evolved filters or transmitters or translators of, of consciousness and that they pick up this signal as it were and they translate it you know, into a socialized ego and, and a body and a brain you know with a, a name even jeff or or um emery or whatever the name is so the you know the metaphor i like to use is a cell phone you can look at your cell phone and you can throw it against the wall and destroy it but it really doesn't affect the wi-fi at all but it will affect the way that cell phone picks up the Wi-Fi and how it personalizes it with your screen and your apps and all of that. So if you talk to, and I don't want to say an honest neuroscientist, that's not fair, but if you talk to a really sophisticated neuroscientist, he or she will tell you that actually the neuroscience works with either model. You can't really tell which model's correct with what we know about the human brain. It could be a transmitter of a, of a signal. It, could be producing the signal. We don't, we can't really tell. Um, and so everything that we study in neuroscience could be a correlation of consciousness, although some of it could be a cause as well. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to prejudge that. Um, I personally think the social ego, the person, the personality is probably caused by the body and the brain and, and its social environment, but the consciousness itself is not. It, it's it's correlated with that body and brain or it's filtered or transmitted through that body and brain. That's my best guess after you don't give me the beer. <laughs> yeah. Theologically, I, I can almost hear echoes of like almost like a divine spark in some sense, right? Yeah. There's, yeah. There's something personal, but there's also something yeah. kind of bigger, more transcendent in some sense. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm very much, I'm very much a Gnostic in this sense. I, I do think, that the the soul, as it were, is this divine spark. Um, but I'm not at all convinced it's personal or or it's egoic based. Yeah. So if it's true, as you're suggesting in the filter thesis, right, that the brain is not something that produces consciousness, but it sort of just filters consciousness or is it attuned to the whatever overmind in a particular way um, that gets localized embodied and so on i'm curious about what that means for psychedelic experience like yeah. you know you know say i take some acid or some mushrooms you know the usual idea is similar to what you were talking about with people's attitudes towards the paranormal right it's the idea is that oh your consciousness whatever that is is being distorted by the presence of these substances and i think that's a fine description right of what, of what happens but it's not an explanation of the experience and especially 
when considered in this all turn ontology that we're talking about, um, I'm, I guess I'm wondering what can we learn about yeah. consciousness from these kinds of experiences? So the, here's the problem, Matt. The, the problem is almost every experience is both produced and reduced. There's no single thing happening. So, for example, psychedelics, you know, the fundamental idea there is that a lot of what happens on in a psychedelic state is, of course, the molecule is interacting with your neurology, with your brain, and it's producing these light shows or these visions. But embedded in there might be a reduction, actually, of brain activity and a kind of letting in of aspects of reality and consciousness that are always there, but you're keeping out because you you have your social ego and your reasoning mind working all the time, and it's shutting out a light that's always there, but but is not available. And what the psychedelic does is it shuts down that ego or that reasoning ability for a set amount of time, and it lets in that light. So I I think it's probably a combination, depending on the psychedelic compound, by the way. I think different molecules work, of course, very differently. And people have very different experiences on different psychoactive substances. But I think it's a mistake to think that those experiences are always just products of the molecule. I think the the molecule can actually be shutting down brain processes and letting, letting more stuff in, including sometimes God, by the way. Um, people have profound experiences of ultimate reality or God taking psilocybin or, or masculine or something that's not uncommon at all yeah we've gone to hell um they, <laughs> they also they also have very negative trips they do go to hell um but again is that is that the molecule interacting with the psychology of the person or is that an objective kind i'm of- really hoping it's the former yeah well i mean it's the same debate in near-death experiences matt I mean, people have really bad near-death experiences, um, but you tend to only read about the positive ones. And so the question is, well, what, what's happening to the bad ones? And, well, A, they're not being reported. People are embarrassed by them. But B, they're, maybe there are fewer of them. I, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer there. My theological conviction is there is no such thing as hell. Um, and it's 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 very much a product of society and psychology, you know, interacting with what whatever you're on or not on. So I, my training is in phenomenology, and it and it sort of strikes me that part of your approach seems to be taking the way that we, at least certain people, particularly phenomenologists, understand what you might call like mundane experiences, and simply applying the same model, right? So if I'm looking at a chair. Uh, you could be an absolute idealist and say that my brain is conjuring the chair and stuff, but that's not what most people think is happening. What most people think is happening is that, you know, there are photons that are hitting the eyes, which are getting translated, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that there's this way of where you're shaping some sort of intuitive experience. Uh, and that's how I'm seeing what I'm seeing. And it seems like, at least to a certain extent, what you're doing is you're applying this to paranormal experiences that rather than the the sort of reductive model um, or is not uh, reductive, uh, like a secular reductionism kind of reductive that says, oh, well, paranormal experiences must simply be entirely created in the mind. What you're suggesting seems to be something like, 
well, in the same way that mundane experiences have this intuitive content, um, why are we assuming that the same doesn't apply in, in paranormal experiences? Yeah, the, the reason I like the reduction thesis so much, and by and again, you're right, I don't mean reductionism. I mean that the consciousness is reduced by the body and the brain. It's not, pro, it's not produced. That, that's what I mean. The reason I like that thesis so much is it helps us accept a broader spectrum of human experience. It's simply more accepting and inclusive. If you believe, Justin, that you are stuck in your skull, you are a ghost in a machine, as it were, there is no way on God's green earth you are going to know when your grandfather dies 400 miles away. But the truth of the matter is people know all the time when loved ones die or in danger, no matter how far away they are. And sometimes they know ahead of time what's going to happen. They see with great detail what's going to play out the next day. Now, that can't happen. That's literally impossible if the production thesis is correct. But if the reduction thesis is correct, that's very plausible. And we have a model for why that, how that can happen. And that model is simply consciousness is not contained in the body and the brain. The body and the brain reduce it. They do not produce it. Um, so that's why I like the thesis. It's not because, oh, it's a cool thesis and I'm just going to run with it. It's, no, I listen. I listen to all these people. I read all these texts. I'm trying to make sense of them. I'm trying to make sense of them together. And this model makes sense of more of these than this model. That's it. And it is a phenomenological argument to go back to your training. I am arguing that human experience is primary, but that doesn't mean it's pure. That doesn't mean it's not enculturated and socialized and languaged and everything else we know about. It, it, it means we have to start there if we're going to understand something like, like religion. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, one of the first things you learn when you take people's experiences seriously is that the imagination sometimes picks up stuff that's not imaginary. And you're just like, what the hell? That, that is so wrong. That is so weird. You know, in other words, somebody can dream. We know dreaming is a function of the imagination. We, that's not a controversial statement. But sometimes people dream in perfect detail what will happen in 24 hours. How is that? What's going on there? You know, so th those are the kind of questions this material leads me to. And that's why I love this stuff. It's not, again, because I understand it or I have all the answers. It's because I don't have the answers. And it makes me think. It makes me question what I assumed was real. So it seems like the a, a question of discernment emerges at that point then. Yeah, it does. Because what I like about this approach is, you know, it has this openness to a variety of experiences, which is really great. What I wonder then is how do we deal with, you know, toxic forms, right? Uh, yeah. you know, so how, how do we deal with, you know, the QAnon person who says that, you know, well, I'm receiving special messages from God that told me that, you know, Trump is going to stop the satanic pedophiles. Um, yeah. How do, you know, it's sort of, you know, and in some ways, I think this is basically just, it's the same problem that you have of with liberalism, right? This idea of you want to be open, but how do you manage those boundaries for people who 
don't want to be open. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on on how discernment works within within this openness without closing down the openness. Well, I think I get asked that question a lot, by the way, just I think it's a really good question. Like, what does all this have to do with conspiracy thinking, essentially? First of all, a lot of a lot of the history of religions is conspiracy thinking. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the basic message of religion is reality ain't what you think it is. You know, I mean, yeah, that's yeah. really that's really the bottom line. And so I think we have to own up to that. But also the real difference is this is where I think theology really comes in. We do have to use reason and we do need to talk to one another and we need to use critical reason and we need to back up things with actual citations and actual events and actual facts and not just blow steam out of out of anywhere, right? I mean, that's essentially what the conspiracy theorists are doing. They're just out of anywhere. They're just making shit up. They're throwing the spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. I mean, that is not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting you take all these people's experiences, you line them up, you put them on the table, you figure out what's similar, what's different, and you start to make hypothetical conclusions about what's going on, and then you share those with other people who are reading you or talking to you or in your classroom. To me, that protects us from the, the batshit crazy stuff that, that conspiracy theory is about, right? I mean, th- there's a lot of crazy stuff in my material, but you still got to talk about it and you still got to cite it and you've got to enter a conversation about it. And there are ways to explain why it sounds so crazy. I think that's a very different enterprise, frankly. I was actually curious um, why you chose to take that approach, because, I mean, we've referenced already certain anthropologists in the ontological turn and that sort of thing. And you have someone like Holbrod who writes this ontology of Aoife divination based on his like experience in these sorts of things. So they're making ontologies based on each of their case studies. Yeah. And I was curious why you chose to take this kind of uh, universal approach. I don't, which universal approach? Like which, which one? In the sense of proposing like a singular ontological structure, like we were talking about dual aspect monism and the flip. And I was curious, uh, what led you to making the choice of proposing a kind of like a proto-ontology, like a, an ontological structure, as opposed to doing this case-by-case sort of approach? So I think the answer is pretty simple. I mean, all those anthropologists you talk about, again, they they live in offices and hallways with other anthropologists who are working in other cultures. They all share a hallway and they all exist and work in a field called anthropology. So I, I think our disciplines and the, our structures of knowledge actually imply some kind of unity, even if there's also a radical sense of multiplicity or diversity. I don't actually think diversity makes any sense if you don't also have unity. You got to you got to have some unity to refer back to your, your diversity. Otherwise, we're all just totally different. And if something's totally different than me, frankly, I eat it. Please elaborate. <laughs> well, I, I consider cows radically different than human beings. I eat meat. You know, I don't eat other human beings. Um, because I consider them to be the same species. I consider myself to be one of them. So I think any kind of human diversity implies some kind of human unity as well. Otherwise, we treat each other as totally different, and that results in violence and, and frankly, eating one another, which, which I just don't do. 
Um, so that's a moral decision, right? So it's, I think, go sorry. ahead. No, I was just going <laughs> to sort of cheekily, cheekily posit that multiplicity is a slippery slope to cannibalism. <laughs> well, I suppose. I mean, if, you, if it's radical multiplicity and, and the other is totally other, why not? I mean, this is why I think authoritarian regimes historically have always dehumanized the enemy. They've always tried to take away their humanity and present them as some kind of monster or non-human beast. I think that's extremely dangerous. No, I don't, I don't, I don't think we should be doing that. I'm not even sure, by the way, we should be eating cows. I, <laughs> I, I'm just a hip, I'm a hypocrite there. I mean, I treat my dog as a furry human being with a human name, and then then I turn around and eat a hamburger. I can't, I can't justify that. That's just what I do, and I suspect it's what a lot of people do. So, connecting this back to your theory, could there be a suggestion, for example, that what you get with an animal is access to that same sort of divine spark like we were talking about earlier but with a different filtering mechanism is yeah that, is that a yeah. real possibility yeah so i think it's more than a real possibility actually i mean i think we're an animal and we're just filtering this and socializing this consciousness in a in a, in a very human way um i'm not at all convinced there's any firm distinction between a human and, and 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 the animal kingdom. I think that's probably mistaken. So that, but to me, that that divinizes the the animal world. It doesn't. It, it's not a form of exclusivism. It's a form of inclusivism. It's also why people are vegetarian for religious reasons, yes. right? I mean, come on. I mean, a lot of religions are are vegetarian for this exact reason. So I, I you know, I had some questions about this dual aspect monism if you could answer some of those um you you proposed it in the flip as a way to kind of see an underlying unity of reality and these sorts of things but i'm still wanting to try and like flesh out how are you seeing this unity like you with the exception of like collective unconscious which was a part of the first proposal for the the deeper unity you, you talked a lot about like essentially abstract universals and different things like that. And so I was just curious where you're seeing the unity with this model. Yeah. So dual aspect modism, just to kind of summarize the position, it, it, it essentially says that the human experience is two. In other words, we each experience ourselves inside a body perceiving objects outside of us in space and time but that this external world and this internal world both emerge or split off a deeper unity that's down here or, or up here, wherever your metaphor is. And so that's why we call it dual aspect monism. It's, it's dual epistemologically, but it's monistic ontologically. There's, there's only one world, but the human being is literally a splitter. The human being splits that unity into an external and an internal world. The reason I like it, Emery, is because it, again, it explains my materials. If you work with paranormal materials enough, you keep running into what most people would call synchronicities, which are essentially events in the external world that correspond eerily to events in the mental world. So 
you're thinking a thought and suddenly that happens in the external world or two things coincide in, in, in a radical way that just goes way beyond any statistical possibility. And what I like about dual aspect monism, it doesn't mean that the mental world is causing the material world. There's no causal relationship. They're both splitting off this deeper source and one's appearing in the external world and one's appearing in the mental world. And that just to me makes a lot of immediate intuitive sense. I also like it because mystical literature around the world is always reducing things to some deeper ground or, or source that cannot be described or languaged, and it's neither mental nor material. So to me, it, it works really well with a lot of the, the texts I, I, I read and a lot of the people I talk to. It just makes sense of these experiences. So that deeper unity, it's not that that, that unity is one thing. It's not some kind of simplistic substance. It's that that unity is this um, living, infinite ground that is neither mind nor matter. And then when it splits off in our experience, it becomes mental and becomes the material world. But it's it's neither deep down. Yeah, I was really curious about this as well. This particular, you know, rendering or configuration, whatever you want to say, of dual aspect monism, because I think for a while, this has been my sort of default uh, yeah. as as well, yeah. um, just because you can basically explain anything you want with it. <laughs> yeah, it works. More, it works more or less. Well. But I mean, and, and it's sort of, I mean, I don't know what you think about this. It just reminds me a lot of, of Spinoza. Yeah. Um, I mean, you said it wasn't a substance, but I'm not sure how you meant that exactly. That's not a question. You don't, have to, you don't have to get into Spinoza if you don't want to, but. Well, no, he is a dual aspect monist. I mean, yeah. Spinoza is perfect. I mean, <laughs> he is. I, I mean, this notion that, you know, Deus, uh, what's the phrase? Deus sive natura. I mean, God or nature. I mean, that's dual aspect monism. You know, it's it's either the natural world externally or it's or it's God internally. It's 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 both. It's it's or it's neither if you if you prefer. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I just think it works really well. And my, my resistance to substance language is just too um it's too blocky today right i mean it's just i think of plato or something you know i mean it's just it's just not a good word i don't and i <laughs> it might have been a good word when spinoza was writing it in latin you know 300 years ago but it's not a good it's just not a good word today it's not a good word i i agree you know what word is good splitters and you were just talking about how we're like, as conscious beings, we're splitters. And I think that's interesting to think about how we, you know, cleave into, upon your view, a single reality and what is uh, ontologically one becomes epistemically two. And I think there's another way to describe that and it's alienation. Yeah. And, I, and I'm wondering how you think about that, maybe in relation to God, who hasn't come up a lot in this conversation, but for like someone like Hegel, and I know you're not a big Hegelian or anything like that, but this is the uh, podcast of the Radical Theology Seminar, so we have to talk about Hegel. Um, but it sound, what you're describing sounds a lot like the self-alienation of God, which is also at once the self-awareness of God. Um, and I know this is a thing like Jesus is big on, and it's a point of reference for a kind of radical theological ontology. I don't know. What's your take on that sort of correspondence that I'm pointing to there? Well, so 
I'm not a philosopher, um, and I get my Hegel from my Hegelian friends, <laughs> right? I mean, I, le- I learned about Hegel through people who actually know Hegel, as opposed to reading him. Um, I, you know, this self-alienation of God, I mean, it sounds very Gnostic to me, Matt. I mean, I mean, I think we are alienated. I think that's just a kind of accurate and honest description of at least my experience is, you know, we feel separate from the one. We, we feel split. We're splitters, to use my earlier language. And it, to speak of God, I don't, um, I don't think of God as an object or some kind of person that's external to me. I think of God as this ultimate ground of, of being, to use, you know, Talikian language. It's that, that unus mundus or that, that singular world underneath the world is two of, of dual aspect monism. So it's the monistic part of the equation for me. I think it's ultimately real. I don't, I don't actually don't have any problem with God language. I think God is idealism for the masses. I think it's the way people who aren't Hegelians or aren't philosophers talk about ultimate reality. And I'm usually just okay with that until they start using the language to hurt other people. And then I get pretty upset. Sorry, what was it? God is what for the masses? God is idealism for the masses. Yeah, we're going to make bumper stickers. Yeah, that's a great t-shirt. I think it's we a should. Great one. Yeah. And, and that resonates, what is that Nietzsche's classic line? The uh, Christianity is Plato for the masses. Something is that what he said? He said, that yeah. sounds like Nietzsche. He had some great one-liners too. <laughs> I, and yeah, I don't think his death of, I, I think Nietzsche was a profoundly religious person, yeah. by the way. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, so religious. I read him and I'm just like, oh my God, this guy is so religious. But in a in a non-religious kind of angry way, you know. Yeah. I think that's I think that's true. Um so we're coming up on an hour and I'm getting this thing up in my right hand, upper right hand corner that says my disc is almost full. So I don't wanna have to cut this uh, awkwardly short, but maybe we should um wrap it up. I'd I'd love to actually do a part two at some point if you, if you'd like. Yeah. You know, I'm happy. I'm happy to talk, talk anytime you want. I mean, I don't want to do it every day, but, but you know, <laughs> we, we, uh, can, we can do it again for sure. Okay. I thought we were friends, man. All right. <laughs> um, I want to get in one last question if I can. Yeah. Um, Sorry, about aliens. We haven't really talked about aliens. yet. We haven't. T- that's the thing. We're going to have to have you back me. to talk about aliens just specifically. And Emery, you're, that's something you're interested in, isn't it? Very much so. I had yeah. some questions about the history of the term and everything. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm all for, I'm all for talking about aliens. All right. So part two will be about aliens. Okay, we'll table, we'll table those questions. Um, but I wanted to ask about uh, comics because you're somebody who's written about comic books and, and so on. What, what's your book on comics called again? It's called Mutants and Mystics. Yeah, it's, that's a great name. Um, so I heard that Marvel is going to start bringing in X-Men into the Marvel Universe, the Avengers and so on. Have you heard that? No, I didn't, but that doesn't surprise me. I mean, why not? Okay. Um, I was just, I was curious what you would love to see. Well, you know, so Mutants and Mystics is up on the wall there. That's the picture on the wall. Um, You know, the basic argument of the book is that superpowers are real. People actually have these experiences. And I would like to see, I would like to see the Marvel writers actually struggle with that. Um, I think comic books and superhero movies are are often projections or escapes. I want to see a Marvel movie that is about 
actual paranormal phenomena in real human lives. That's that's what I want to see. That would be my my goal. Um, I've talked to them, by the way. I've I've so tried to get them to do this, and they of course don't listen to me. What do I know? But that's that's what I think we need. So the invisibles. <laughs> well, again, it's the invisibles is it's it's still it's fiction, right? I mean, sure. I mean, nobody or, comes out and says, yeah. I mean, Alan Moore kind of says that, but he, even he hides behind entertainment and fiction. I want someone to say, no, this is this is actually the case, and here's an example, and then not tell us a story, but actually tell us an actual history of of you know a medium or a levitating human being or something. That's really interesting. It makes me think of like, what was the Bruce Willis flick? Unbreakable. Yeah. Yeah. Unbreakable. That reminded me of what you were just saying. It, it kind of comes close to that. I mean, I, yeah. I love that movie, by the way, of course, um, because it, it actually kind of tries to say that. I want him to say it more clearly, though, like really bluntly. <laughs> well, like, you have to you have to write a script in your face. Kind of. No, you here it is. I, I know. I, that's what everybody says. <laughs> so how, how's how's this? We reconvene in a month. You have your Wolverine script ready <laughs> and we'll, we'll all act out the parts. <laughs> I, I think we can do the meet in a month part, but not the Wolverine part. Oh, man. All right. <laughs> all right. Um, Thanks again for for meeting with us today. Uh, it's you know real pleasure, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, you know picking up this conversation in you know several weeks or so. Yeah, well, let's talk about aliens this summer. That would be De- good. Definitely. Be great. Uh, and thanks, Emery, for jumping in. Appreciate it, man. Of course. Thank you for having me. All right, y'all. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, guys. Take All care. Right. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks. Thanks again to Jeff. Uh, Thanks also to Emery. Uh, Thank you for listening. See you next time.